the outcome is really troubling because now you have Moscow feeling emboldened. It is the week of January 10th, and welcome to episode 113 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Megan Stiefel, founder of Silicon Harbor Consultants, Sarah Stewart, executive director of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Last week, we saw riots and chaos in Kazakhstan with people apparently protesting the rising price of gas. Who knew that was a sensitive political issue? Now it appears that the real winner of the unrest is President Tokayev, who has ousted the former leader, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, from his honorary position as head of state, along with many of Nazarbayev's allies, including the prime minister and the head of security. Tokayev has now invited Russian troops into Kazakhstan to maintain order. Jamil, this all happened pretty fast. What's really going on in Kazakhstan and does it matter to the United States? Well, I mean, I think, you know, in the larger sense uh, that we see uh, Russia once again meddling in the former Soviet republics, I think it does matter to the United States because um, it sets the stage for what may turn into uh, what people have predicted now for the better part of a month, uh, an invasion of Ukraine. Um, you know, uh, the the unrest that's taken place in uh, in Kazakhstan over the last uh, week or week and a half or so, uh, given gas prices and the like, has resulted, as you said, um, in security forces being ordered to shoot without warning. Um, 6,000 people have been detained. Uh, about 160 people have been killed in the violence, more than 100 in, in, in Almaty, the largest city in Kazakhstan. Um, and and uh, the power of the Russian apparatchik um, in in uh, in in Kazakhstan, uh, President Tokayev, Kasim Tokayev, uh, has been solidified. Um, and and Russian troops are there, and so um, it's a it's it's not an ideal situation for a former Soviet republic. Now, it's not like Kazakhstan was in such great shape before under Nazarbayev, who, uh, by the way, wasn't wasn't the leader. He had replaced himself with with Tokayev. Uh, he was running the very powerful National Security Council, and that's the, the post for which he was removed. Um, but it bespeaks a larger sort of vision that Vladimir Putin clearly has. He's an unresolved former uh, KGBer, um, and I think he would like nothing nothing more than to see the Soviet Union or a version of it, perhaps without all the economic challenges, uh, reinstated. And so he's looking to gain influence over his former republics. Um, and we've seen what he's doing. We've done with Ukraine. We saw him uh, take Crimea. We've seen the the little green men, as they the so called little green men, um, in in the eastern provinces of Ukraine. And uh, and we see the potential uh, the potential for a uh, for an invasion. Um, and now now he's been invited into Kazakhstan. So uh, not not a good sign, uh, I think, for sort of the former Soviet republics, for our allies in Eastern Europe. Um, but a win for Vladimir Putin. So you know um, that's uh, that's what we got, unfortunately, in Eastern Europe today. All right. You didn't answer. You didn't answer my basic question, though, which does it matter to the United States? Well, look, I mean, Kazakhstan is an important country in Central Asia. Uh, It's a key producer of oil and uranium. Um, Are we willing to put troops on the line for Kazakhstan? Almost certainly not. All right. We're not willing to put troops on the line for Ukraine. And they are certainly more interesting and more important to us in some ways. Um, and we've actually guaranteed their uh, their uh, sovereignty, uh, which, of course, we failed to failed to keep a promise. We failed to keep in 2013 when under President Obama, Vladimir Putin went and took that country. So Kazakhstan, I think probably probably not 
Uh, but uh, but nonetheless, not a good situation. Sarah, let me, let me turn to you. Uh, Kazakhstan, really big country. It's the biggest of the of the five stands, uh, Central Asia, as we call it. It's got a very small population density. It's got a lot of energy resources, natural gas, uranium, other things. Given given that, and given how important energy is, should should the U.S. be playing a bigger role here? Thanks, Les. I mean, I I agree with Jamil. I, I don't think that we're going to see it. Um, and not because Kazakhstan's not important or that their energy sector isn't important. I mean, we have the U.S. and Kazakhstan have a long history. We were the first country to recognize their independence from the former Soviet Union. Um, we have a strategic partnership with them. Um, we don't have a huge amount of trade, but there's about $2 billion in two-way trade between the U.S. and Kazakhstan, and our firms have investments in their energy sector. Um, all of that being said, everything transpired pretty quickly over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, as Jamil said, Moscow got what it wanted. There is now a government in place that's pro-Russia. Uh, Takayev got what he wanted. It was, which was to shore up power. And, you know, for the moment, I think there's not a whole lot for the U.S. to do. However, the outcome is really troubling because now you have Moscow feeling emboldened and you have a former Soviet Republic that is, you know, basically has, 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 uh, has power that's, that's in line with what Putin's interests are and not U.S. interests. So while I don't think that the U.S. should necessarily be playing a direct role in the events going on in Kazakhstan now outside of condemning, you know, any any sort of, uh, you know, actions against uh, civilians and, and, and protesters that are outside the rule of law, um, I do think that the U.S. should be paying very close attention given it's going to be negotiating or at least discussing uh, you know, with Russia this week and how Russia is dealing with Kazakhstan is foreboding of, of how they might deal with Ukraine. And these should be top issues for U.S. interest. Megan, uh, this, as we've already mentioned, uh, this is yet another example of Russia stepping into the politics and the security of its neighbors uh, when they're experiencing chaos, very opportunistic move by the Russians, by Putin. Uh, We saw this happen in Ukraine, in Crimea and the Donbass in 2014. We saw it happen uh, more recently in Belarus, and that's that's kind of ongoing. Um, uh, Should should the U.S. be thinking more strategically about Central Asia and and this neighborhood and maybe being more forward leaning in our relationships there so that this this kind of easy win for Putin isn't quite as obtainable the next time? Thanks, uh, Les, and Happy New Year to everyone. So, um, well, I would say the first thing I would say is it's a, just because we aren't overtly seeing U.S. support doesn't mean there isn't support going on elsewhere. I would hope that there is at least a degree of that. Um, but the fact that this happened so easily and so quickly suggests that whatever other uh, relationships we're using, whether they be diplomatic or, or other types of, uh, in the sort of dime LE handbook um, or toolkit that are not very um, uh, deep at this point. So um, it would seem to me that this, as this continues, as you've just outlined to be a, an ongoing set of, of um, entanglements that, that sort of, it's almost like a wheel. Okay. You know, it was Ukraine and it was et cetera, et cetera. And now we're back to Ukraine again. 
um, that that perhaps we need to rethink kind of the the strategic relationship with these countries, because they continuing to they are continuing to pop up and crop up in ways that are probably destabilizing. Um, because here again, as Jamil said, we're we're considering uh, you know or, or barely considering U.S. troops for Ukraine. Um, so. My view would be yes, uh, but but I may be in the minority there. Um, but it's not to say that we need to be making a significant shift, I think, in our policy. It's really thinking about revisiting a range of, of um, resources that the U.S. government and hopefully partners could be thinking about in, in supporting the region. Um, and I think some of this, I think, plays into the conversation we'll have at the next topic of our of our podcast, which is to say, how do we manage the U.S.-China-Russia relationship and dynamics here? And I, I do see an element of, of this uh, policy, the policy approach with respect to this particular crisis as tying into one that we need to bear in mind with respect to Russia and China as well, great power politics. Megan, you're you're reading my mind. And I, and I wanted to kind of, uh, maybe we're going a little bit early, but let's let's bridge into our second topic, which uh, without totally abandoning Kazakhstan here, but the second topic, of course, is uh, Russian-Chinese cooperation against the United States. But let's let's stay with Kazakhstan a little bit. It seems to me the thing that the U.S. is missing in Central Asia is the opportunity to play off these countries against Russia and China. This is this is the uh, one of the elemental conflicts that's always going to be there between between Beijing and Moscow. They're never going to agree on exactly the right approach to Central Asia. We as the offshore balancer, if we're interested and we're aggressive, can play a role in making sure neither side really sees what it wants and make co- overall cooperation between those two places less likely. So Kind of why I asked the question, should we be more forward leaning in a place like Kazakhstan where there are energy resources we care about, even though we are a net energy exporter, many of our allies are are energy importers, we do care about the price of natural gas, we do care about uranium supplies, we, we want to make sure that that our friends and uh, whatnot have have the ability to have a thriving economy. So places like Kazakhstan do matter. And since it's right there between Russia and China, th- it seems to me this is a place where we shouldn't let uh, Vladimir Putin just flip a switch and suddenly, uh, I'm using air quotes, Russian troops are, are helping establish security in Almaty and other cities in Kazakhstan. They're doing the, in fact, they're doing the long-term, the opposite. They're they're going to be preventing the, uh, real democracy and prosperity from happening in that country. It's in the long-term best interests of Kazakhstan to embrace the West. We just haven't been there to make that case in a way that makes a difference in a situation like this. So who, who wants to jump in and provide an alternative or perhaps admonish the administration for not being more creative here instead of us negotiating with the Russians over Ukraine or talking directly to the Chinese about Taiwan, we should be finding ways to uh, make them worry about each other. We make that too easy for them not to have to worry about the other other superpower, Jamil. Well, I think less. I'm not sure. I disagree with you that uh, that we should sort of you know try to put Russia and China at odds. But my my the point you made about democracy. It's not like Kazakhstan was some like beacon of democratic ideals. I mean. You know, Nazarbayev had been in power since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1990, uh, you know. And yes, he eventually left office voluntarily a few years back, but he still ran the National Security Council. And when everyone talks about, you know, removing him from power, as Takaya just did, it's because he was still the power in the country. And so they, they didn't have some wildly functioning democracy that we should be worried about. It's not Ukraine, you know, it's just not. And so 
Um, I'm not sure that this is the place to say, well, you know, we're deeply, deeply concerned about about Vladimir Putin monkeying around there. It's been a Soviet friendly republic since the jump and uh, still is today. You know, yeah, I don't uh, I don't I don't think Thomas Jefferson was going to pop up in, in Almaty and start drafting a, a really enlightened constitution or anything. But having Russian troops go in there now postpones that uh, the eventual embrace of democracy by Kazakhstan even further out, probably by decades, right? Like this is bad news for the Kazakh people. Well, maybe this is the question I was wondering about is, do we think it was ever going to embrace democracy? I mean, was that, was that a thing that was coming in Kazakhstan that none of the rest of us saw? Like, did you see something there that the rest of us didn't see? Because I didn't see the Kazakh people looking to uh, sort of, you know, championing democracy other than these protests that we just saw this week right i mean didn't seem like anybody was really like oh hey boy we really you know got to take take to the streets now and i as we admitted in in some of the opening pre-recording dialogue i'm not the expert here um but one thing we one thing we haven't touched on is the 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 balance of or the the imbalance of ethnic makeup in the country and so where you have it's as i understand a largely muslim population how does that um, I think, you know, kind of the risk to the Russian minority, um, not to say that that predisposes anyone towards greater has as having more inclinations towards democracy, but one might see uh, the, the majority population that's currently controlled by a Russian minority as being seeking alternative opportunities in terms of their leadership, but they haven't yet. So um, I think, you know, as we're talking here, we're watching the the, the Twitter feed and, and elsewhere is seeing, you know, also folks calling this a coup attempt. Um, and, and so is it, was it an attempted color revolution as, as, as Putin is currently describing it? Um, I don't know. I think, Jamil, it's a, it's, a, it's a reasonable question. I guess I would say, back to Les's opening question, I would like for us to be more engaged uh, and thinking about how we might support, uh, you know, the potential flowering of, of democracy, democratic values there which it doesn't appear has been the case to date. Well, and I'll just point out, Jamil, like we all saw uh, uh, Nazarbayev stepping back a few years ago as a sign of progress in Kazakhstan. It's now clear that, that we may have been misreading the situation, but nevertheless, it's hard not to think that Russian troops going in to prop up uh, a regime that can't otherwise take care of itself is really a step backwards overall for the development of Kazakhstan. And and maybe they're not starting at 10, maybe they're starting at one in their journey, but now they're even further back than they were before. And I think uh, in, in that sense, I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, a th- an authoritarian regime and dictatorship is inevitable for the Kazakh people. At some point, uh, there, you know, there will be a flowering of democracy and human rights in that country, hopefully during our lifetimes. Uh, but but You're what such we're a seeing neocon, now is holding less. on. You're such a neocon. From from you, that's high praise. <laughs> it is. I'm just saying, like, look, I don't dis- I actually don't disagree with you. I just uh I just, you know, Nazarbayev, Tokayev, right? I mean, they're all Russian apparatchiks, you know, six of one, half dozen of another. Maybe Tokayev's not as nutty as as Nazarbayev. Um, but uh look at the end of the day, this ain't Ukraine. And you know, what do we get to we get to, are we gonna talk about that? that this may be that this may be happening. this. This may be too pie in the sky, but if the, if there were an alternative for Tokayev to reach out to Putin for security assistance, if he felt he could call the United States and we would be able to be there for him in a case where there is domestic unrest and we offered a solution that is 
congruent with our respect for human rights, yeah. but also allows for a government to function, that would be better than us just kind sure. of shrugging as Vladimir Putin rolls in with uh, the Wagner group or whatever other Russian uh, forces who are not going to do anything like that. Unless that would require so many different things. That would, that would require not a Russian puppet in office in Kazakhstan. That which hasn't been true since 1990. Um, that would require the U.S. to have some actual moxie in our foreign policy, which we don't, or any guts, or any real belief in standing up for anything we we claim to believe in. Right? President Biden will talk a lot about democracy and human rights, all stuff, but he won't put any he won't put any American troops on the line for that. He won't even he won't even put any, put any real military might on the line for it. He'll he'll talk about economic sanctions. So that's about the worst that Vladimir Putin can expect from from Joe Biden. So, uh, and I mean, we won't even we won't even stand up to the Chinese. We're going to we have a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics. Great. Uh, Chinese are quaking in the boots of that one. Um, and of course, we ran away from Afghanistan, our allies and the 60,000 uh, people that died there in that in that conflict uh, that we fought um, against the Taliban and, and Al Qaeda. Uh, of course, we lost twenty five hundred troops. But according to President Biden, they didn't want to fight for their country. So, yeah, I, I think that would be great if, if the U.S. stood by its allies. But we've shown no signs that we're going to do that. By the way, I don't mean to hang it all on President Biden. President Obama was just as bad. And President Trump, who was between the two of them, was a nightmare also. So, you know, it, it's been a it's been a it's been a dozen years of American lacking leadership, America lacking leadership in the world, not standing up for our allies and not making our adversaries afraid. So, you know, what can I tell you? Sarah, do you want to respond to the rant? Yeah, (laughs) I would just jump in to say that, you know, I mean, I think if democracy was our most immediate goal, then we could think about what our strategy is for that. Um, I think our probably our most immediate goal is stability and an ability to work with the Russians to try and de-escalate on Ukraine. And Kazakhstan should probably be part of that conversation, given recent events. <laughs> um, hopefully it will be. And, you know, hopefully the, the U.S. would, you know, want to make sure that there's not, you know, repeats of, of what we just saw taking place. But at the same time, I think the U.S. trying to deal directly with Kazakhstan right now and to try and take, take that on while at the same time trying to potentially de-escalate with Russia is intention. Um, and so I'd rather see the U.S. focus its most immediate, uh, you know, on, on a de-escalation and, and stability. But, you know, this is this, this this will be a really important consideration to be thinking about and building into a strategy because this is definitely a win for Moscow. The other thing I would say is another thing that worries me is autocrats supporting autocrats. And, you know, you've got, you've got Moscow coming in here to support Tokayev, but in the background is also China saying, hey, you know, what the government is doing under Tokayev is responsible. And I'm not sure that I would agree with that assessment, given what we've seen reported out on how the protests were were handled. So there is a morass of heated geopolitics that are way bigger than the last couple of weeks. And and we need to get a handle on on all of that. All right. Let's uh, let's pull back and uh, speak more broadly of the Eurasian landmass and the uh, what we're seeing a lot more of lately, which is uh, seeming cooperation between Russia and China against U.S. interests. We've seen increased military cooperation. 
joint exercises, Russia and China in China, uh, collaboration on technology issues between the two governments, aviation, hypersonics, undersea weapon systems. Uh, Moscow and Beijing renewed their friendship treaty for another five years last summer. Um, for me, it reminds me of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of 1939, but it might be just me. Um, you were alive did, then, right, Les? You might think so, given my increasingly blonde hair. But there is definitely evidence that these two countries are collaborating more, and it appears to be because of a mutual interest in uh, opposing the U.S. agenda across the globe, and perhaps perceptions that the U.S. might be uh, less willing to defend its interests in general. Megan, I want to go to you first. What's What's your assessment pulling back uh, how real this collaboration is between Russia and China? Well, you, you stole some of my commentary there, but I'll recap some of it just to, to reiterate my point. Um, so I, I will say at the outset, I wonder whether or not they want us to think it's more real than it actually is, which would thereby, in my saying that also goes suggest that there is some more strategy at work here than, than we may suspect. But um, you know, I think at the end of the day, just to recap, well, at the end of the day, I'm not convinced that this is as, it certainly looks bad, but I'm not convinced that it's actually as strategic as, as some are are seeing it. I mean, to state the obvious, both countries remain concerned about US military and economic dominance, but they're not alone in that. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily then mean that there's a more strategic alliance at work. Um, certainly they're making maneuvers. And, and as you, you know articulated, they've done uh, joint military trainings. Uh, they've done both, uh, they, they undertook a, a naval training just off um, uh, in the just off Russia's eastern border uh, back in October and November timeframe. Um, but I think at the end of the day, a lot of the reporting suggests that we should urge ca- caution in seeing these developments as more than just shared ideological views, which is to say they're opposed to liberal democracy and therefore willing to support any effort to undermine our work to that end. Um, but I, I suspect that some. Uh, at least one of my former DOJ colleagues may bluntly disagree with me, maybe not. Um, one other quick point there, um, if that's okay, Les. You know, we do at the same time though have ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, saying that the the relationship between China and Russia is the closest it's been in 60 years. So that is you know cause for pause. Sarah, one of one of the things that the Russians and the Chinese mention when they when they talk about this cooperation is an increased economic relationship between the two countries. Of course, China by some measures, the second biggest economy in the world, perhaps the biggest in some other measures. Uh, Russia, not as not nearly as big and arguably shrinking, uh, probably overly reliant on, on uh, natural resources, particularly in the energy sector. Uh, what's, your, what's your take as someone a little more focused on um, dollars and cents about how real that collaboration is? I think it's a show. I think it's a political show um, that needs to happen between two countries that are increasingly finding themselves isolated on the global economic stage. Um, I don't really think that there's a lot of there there because it's so asymmetrical, as you noted. Um, There's there's just a leverage issue. Um, We're not talking about two, you know, uh, two. uh, partners of the same might, right? I mean, China's GDP is 14 something trillion. Russia's is 1.4. Um, you know, when you look at the percentage of trade that Russia accounts for, for China, it's less than 1%. 
On the flip side, you know, China is uh, accounts for over 15% of, of Russia's trade. So there is an immediate imbalance there. Um, I think that there's probably some synergies in the way that they are both looking for more global uh, influence and, you know, are willing to go to great lengths <laughs> to get that and, and, and sometimes to lengths that many other countries would not go to. Um, but at the same time, I, I come back and I ask myself, like, what's in this for China? Um, it just, you know, Russia is not, is not a great economic partner for them. They're not a trade powerhouse. They're not a technology powerhouse. Um, they, you know, they, they don't have a huge relationship with the U.S. when it comes to, to trade. Um, maybe from an EU perspective, you could see some, some points there. But at the end of the day, I think that this is showmanship um, versus, you know, anything, anything that we need to really be too concerned about on the economic front. Jamil, uh, there are huge differences in the interests of the two countries, uh, just geographically speaking, in Central Asia, as we kind of mentioned, in the Arctic, China and Russia are, are competitors, not really collaborators. Uh, in, in economic terms, there might be some synergy in that Russia's exporting energy, China clearly importing it. But in the past, they've argued over the border. They've argued over uh, really obscure points about communist ideology and about uh, and about Joe Stalin's uh, approach to it and uh, wonderfully esoteric things like that. Do you think eventually this collaboration, to the extent we're seeing it for real now, is sustainable over the long term? Well, I think it's only sustainable if Russia recognizes its place in this relationship, which is it's not a junior partner. It's just not a partner at all. Um, the only reason anybody even pays any attention to Russia, I think you, you know, we laid out here, is they have a bunch of nuclear weapons and they have a lot of oil. Other than that, their economy is relatively small. Uh, they're a third rate power at best. Uh, they're trying to be bigger than they are. That's what that's what a lot of this Vladimir Putin run around the Middle East uh, you know, sit on the border of Ukraine, uh, invading Crimea. That's what it's all about. It's about, you know, the disinformation in the U.S. It's all about trying to magnify Russia's, uh, 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 you know, uh, the world's view of Russia in order to justify Vladimir Putin's view of what Russia is or should be, uh, when it in fact just isn't that, you know. I mean, yes, you have to take it seriously because it has nuclear weapons. And so if Russia comes to realization that what is in its best interest are are allying itself with China closely, and that China is the superpower and Russia is not, then perhaps it could work. The problem is the chances of the Russians doing that, at least under Vladimir Putin's leadership, are zero. Right? They're a very proud people. He's obviously a uh, an ego maniac, um, and uh, and uh, the idea that he would concede to being a junior partner to the Chinese is, is not is not likely to happen. And so the Chinese they're likely to see more tension with one another. Uh, they'll cooperate on certain things. You know, you know my. My enemy is my enemy until they're until they're the enemy of my friend, right? Um, and then and then we might ally together, and uh, that's partly the case here. It's it's a, it's it's their perspective on us. Uh, they have a lot to disagree over, as you pointed out. Um, at the end of the day, I think that they're more likely to be frenemies than enemies directly, um, unless you know one or more gets a little more aggressive than they should, and then you know all bets are off. But right now, I think they're focused. You know, Vladimir Putin's focused on on shoring up his base at home, going into going to Ukraine. If he can do it, if he can do it at, no, low, at limited human cost, sort of makes him look strong, makes him look powerful, um, and makes him def be, be defending Russians in Ukraine, um, and uh, and so um, that's the play for him. It's not about trying to, 
you know, get in a tussle with China, um, you know, and, and the Chinese, the same too. They, they see both us and the Russians as relatives, as relative flash of the pans when it comes to their uh, multi-thousand year history. All right. So this question is for, is for everyone. Should, should the United States be doing more uh, to undermine whatever cooperation is going on between Russia and China? Megan, I'll go to you first. I don't think that should be our first level priority, right? I think we need to pursue our own objectives. And then to the extent that those straight throw sand in the gears between this this effort or this relationship, okay. But I, I think otherwise it would serve as a great distraction from, from getting after our non-existent foreign policy, as Jamil just uh, articulated a few minutes ago. It's not that it's non-existent, it's just that it sucks. It's not, it's, it's yeah. there. It's a policy. It's a, it's a, it's a runaway from the world policy. It's the same policy as Donald Trump and Barack Obama. Well, you know, and I would jump in here too, to say that, you know, there's, there's an inverse here too. I mean, on the one hand, you could, you know, sort of consider what we need to, um, you know, try and cause a divide between China and, and Russia. But on the other hand, we need to think about what can we not do to build that up into something that it's not. And I think, you know, giving a lot of, you know, validation to these two, you know, these two countries working together and, oh no, and, you know, we, the sky is falling because they're teaming up. I mean, I think we've just, you know, pretty much laid out that, you know, there's, there's some cause for concern, but at the end of the day, you know, there's an asymmetry there and, um, I think we shouldn't, we should not give them, you know, more, more power because that's what they're, they're, they're looking to be less isolated and to have more friends because there is a diminishing group of friends out there for both China and for Russia. seems to me for whatever it's worth them to try to collaborate with each other because they're, they're both so well, snake bit that it can only in the long run uh, hurt them while at the same, <laughs> while at the same time, we're working against uh, their interests in places where they conflict, like Central Asia, like what's going on in Kazakhstan right now, like the Arctic, uh, and and on these other issues uh, where they think they can kind of get away with with sliding by. And we we should be there. We should be present. We should be globally active, and playing and playing one side out, off against the other so that they can't they can't be secure in their position. And we're we don't seem to have quite the long term view or the imagination to do that uh, as often as we should be. But this, this should be a relatively straightforward play. There are, there are c- people who would be willing to collaborate with the United States in that effort, and we don't seem to be seizing that ground as often as we should be. We get a little too focused on our own internal politics and not willing to kind of just jump out and be uh, take some, some low-risk wins. Uh, Les, when, let me ask you, themselves. you this, though. Who, who do you think is willing to to put their neck out there uh, besides us. We would get some, uh, maybe yeah. not everybody, but we'd find some local partners who would be happy to use us to balance off Beijing and Moscow. They don't necessarily like having to call Vladimir Putin for help. They know it's like dealing with the mob and that they're never going to go away. It's a, it's a deal with the devil. They would much rather do a deal with us, I think, in the long run, if they felt we were reliable we were we would give them good terms and we would and we would um, be there for the long term in a way that was that was helpful to them. They would they would prefer us. I, I, I have to think that that may be a little Boy Scoutish, I know. But I think there's enough of those in the world that we can we can really make a difference and make life a lot harder for Xi Jinping and for Vladimir Putin. I'm with you. OK, 
Yay. All right. There's two votes for the Munson approach. All right. Uh, let's go to our final topic, which is uh, the news you're following that's not necessarily on the front page. Jamil, I will go to you first. Well, I'm following the uh, release uh, over the weekend uh, of a Saudi princess from uh, at least three years of detention. Uh, princess uh, Basma bin, bin Saud uh, was the daughter of Saudi Arabia's second king, uh, King Saud. Um, and she was in a, a prison without charge for a while. Um, she obviously, you know, uh, keep part of the royal family. Yes, she had spoken out uh, on, on social media and the like. Um, but, uh, and, and may have been part of this larger, uh, crackdown on, on, on royals who were, who were caused trouble. Uh, but what's odd about it is now she's out, uh, along with her daughter. Um, and it's not clear what led to the release, um, why now, um, and what the thinking is, uh, Prince, uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, obviously, um, uh, continuing to plan on uh, becoming king when his father, uh, passes away. Um, but the uh, next question now will be: Will they will they allow Princess Basma to travel? Uh, she her lawyer indicates that she does need a, a health uh, some sort of medical treatment that she can't get in Saudi Arabia. She needs it abroad. Uh, it wouldn't be surprising if she's trying to make her, her way out of Saudi Arabia yeah. um, and 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 stay stay outside the country. We'll see what happens with this. What are you um, tracking? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna run it back here to to Russia to the wayside because it doesn't quite reach the same uh, octave as, as some of the other news, but um, USTR, the U.S. Trade Representative, has to do an annual report to Congress on Russia's compliance at the end of the year um, that kind of went silently into the night, but, you know, basically bringing up um, the fact that, you know, there's a number of commitments that Russia is not following through on and is out of compliance. Um, um, and, uh, you know, is a global trading regime. Of course, Moscow has categorically denied, you know, the, the allegations. I think given, you know, the discussions that are going on with respect to both, you know, cybersecurity as well as with Ukraine, there is a renewed focus on bilateral issues and definitely part of that atmospherics on a, on a big issue that's also playing out in Geneva at the World Trade Organization with other members. Megan, what's on your plate? Well, this has less to do directly with great power or sometimes allied activities and, and more to do with something that I'm just sort of trying to catch up to speed with, which is this idea of Web3 and the question around sort of centralization and decentralization. And um, for those of you uh, who refuse to, uh, I would still nonetheless encourage you to take a look at a blog post from Moxie, Marlon Spike from over the weekend. Um, it is uh, among the things that I took away from it is this idea that um, most of us don't actually have direct interaction with the blockchain. We're working through third parties. And in many cases, the, and I'm gonna probably butcher this, but <clears throat> the applications that we use to rely on those interactions is are basically, there's little trust built in, a few safety mechanisms, some few security mechanisms built into these interactions that we have with these parties who actually manage our interaction with uh, aspects of the blockchain. Which says to me that we still, we think we're building something new and that it's going to be great and trustworthy and, and everything is going to be fantastic when in reality, we still don't know what, what the heck we're doing. Um, and we're going to be basically bringing forward, and I guess maybe I agree with Moxie on some of these points, securities that we had in, in Web 2.0 and Web 1 uh, into a future uh, web where we do have, in theory, we have these property rights that are built into the web, but in reality, there is the security, uh, which is the fourth thing that's forefront on my, forefront on my mind, um, is, is actually 
not in the forefront of those who are building its mind. Supporting those who are, or investing in those who are building this Web3, we really need to be a little, I think, more deliberate about not just how much money uh, can be gleaned and, and mined, no pun intended, uh, in 3.0, um, and really think about what the national security implications are for this. Um, so uh, while we may think, be thinking that we're creating a great decentralized mechanism that's going to bring human rights and, and property rights for all, and as a counter to what China thinks is the need for a centralized uh, space, I think we need to be dig a little bit deeper in our approach to it. Folks, don't interpret any of this as investment advice uh, no. or, or commenting Thank on you. politics and national security. <laughs> I was I was tempted to buy some Web3 stocks, but now I'm not <laughs> going to, Megan. Um, did I just counteract what I, what yeah, I, I said earlier? Oh, never mind. With, withdrawn. Uh, so I'm tracking uh, what is uh, seemingly interesting economic news coming out of China. And this was pointed out uh, by uh, our colleague, John Lipsy, to me uh, earlier. Uh, Evergrande, the biggest uh, real estate developer uh, in China, uh, suspended trading last week. Uh, it's supposedly been told to demolish some buildings. Um we're seeing uh, Omicron breakthrough in Hong Kong. Uh, other stocks are taking a tumble. The tech sector in China is in trouble. Uh, we're seeing uh, government-issued bonds, local government-issued bonds not doing well. Uh, there, there are a slew of other bad news coming out of China. Nothing in and of itself catastrophic, but it does kind of make you wonder about the ability of Chinese regulators to stay on top of this. China's been growing red hot for decades. At some point, there needs to be a reckoning for that. Also this year, Xi Jinping is going to cement his authority as president for life by winning an unprecedented third term. All of those things conflate together. Uh, there's a lot of political pressure in the Chinese system right now. Oh, and by the way, as Jamil mentioned earlier, they're gonna have the Olympics in Beijing. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Bridget Neff Hickman and Marissa Kelberman for research assistance, and Ruth Zhou for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.